Raise your hand if you've ever had a dream where you're in a public space and you're not wearing any clothes. It's a very common nightmare that you hear about, that you're in a public setting and you're not wearing anything. And of course, in the dream, you're, you're looking for anything, you're looking for places to hide, but you can never quite find it, can you? There's nowhere to hide, there's no clothes to be found, and you're just stuck there. And it got me thinking, why is it that that's such a common nightmare? Why do so many people have that shared experience, this, this fear of being caught like that? Well, I think it's a common dream because it's a common fear that we all have. We have anxiety, fear, shame over nakedness. And in fact, that's why we wear clothes. We wear clothes to cover up our nakedness. We're ashamed. We're, we're afraid of people looking at us like that. But the question is, not only why do we wear clothes, but can it tell something about our relationship with God? What does wearing clothes have to do with our relationship with God? Well, thankfully, the Bible has the answers to this very question. Let's turn to the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 2, the very start of where the Bible story begins. And when God first creates the world in Genesis 1 and 2, he makes Adam and Eve, the very first humans... And there's some very interesting details about how Adam and Eve lived together. Genesis chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 21. And we'll see the creation of Eve and what happens once Adam and Eve are created together. So Genesis 2 verse 21, it says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And God took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, but were not ashamed. So God, he creates Eve specifically for Adam. They're perfect for one another. They're a perfect fit. And we see here the first marriage taking place, where Adam and Eve are joined together so closely that it's described as being one flesh. They're as close as any two people can be. And it says that the two of them were naked and neither of them were ashamed. That's very different from the way that we feel with our common fear of nakedness. But here, Adam and Eve, they're in the garden and there's no shame between the two of them. Neither of them are wearing clothes and yet there's no fear, there's no shame, there's no anxiety here. Now, of course, this doesn't last for very long. In the very next chapter, Eve is tempted by Satan in the guise of a serpent. And Eve is tempted to disobey God and eat from the forbidden fruit. And Adam decides to do the same thing. He's going to eat the same fruit that Eve has invited him to. And notice what changes when they eat this forbidden fruit. Genesis chapter 3 
and we'll start in verse 6. Have a look at what are some of the differences that occur once Adam and Eve eat the fruit. Genesis 3.6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves clothing. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So once they eat from the tree, once they commit this sin, this disobedience to God, what things change? Well, the first is that they suddenly feel shame over their nakedness. In the previous verse we looked at, it said they were both make naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And yet here, as soon as they eat the fruit, the first thing we're told is both of them realize they are naked and suddenly they feel shame. They try and cover up their nakedness with clothing. Secondly, they're now in fear of God and they hide from Him. Notice they don't just try and hide their nakedness from each other, they try and hide themselves from God. It says when God comes down into the garden, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Why did they want to hide from God is the question. Was it merely just the fact that they were not wearing clothes? Or is there something deeper, more spiritual here? Adam and Eve realize that they have sinned, they've disobeyed, God And they're hiding from God because they realize they've done the wrong thing. And this is where we see the beginning of this ongoing theme throughout the Bible, where nakedness is a symbol of sin or disobedience. Where to be naked is symbolic of being disobedient towards God. Not just that, it's also a symbol of judgment. And it's very simple to see why. If someone in the Bible is described as naked, it means that they're a sinner. And all sinners are under judgment. So when the Bible says that uh, a person or a, a nation or a country is naked, it implies that they are under God's judgment. And we see this all throughout the Bible, this reoccurring idea. Whenever God prophesies uh, against an evil or sinful country, he often uses nakedness as a symbol of both their sin and invading judgment. For example, when God uh, talks about the nation of Babylon, Babylon, they would go, they were warmongers, they would invade foreign territories of other countries. When they successfully took over a country, they would actually take the people away from their homeland. So these were not good people. And when the prophet Isaiah speaks about their, the nation of Babylon being under God's soon judgment because of their evil, listen to the language he uses. Isaiah 47, he says, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no longer be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal. Here's where the language starts. Remove your veil. So that's what would cover the face. 
Take off your skirt, uncover the thigh, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame will be seen. I will take vengeance and I will not arbitrate with a man. So what are the two very closely connected ideas? God says that he's going to uncover the nakedness of the nation of Babylon. In other words, he's going to expose their sin. He's going to expose them for who they are. And that nakedness is immediately associated with God's judgment, his justice, his vengeance. Your shame will be seen and I will take vengeance. God uses this language another time with a different country, that of the country of Assyria. And the Assyrians and their capital city, the city of Nineveh, they were a bad bunch. Uh, The Assyrians were probably even worse than the Babylonians in some ways. When they would go to a city and they would invade it, they would take prisoners of war, they would impale them on poles, they would uh, skin people alive, they would do all sorts of horrendous tortures on their prisoners. These were evil, evil people. And when the prophet Nahum speaks to the city of Nineveh and the country of Assyria, this is interestingly what he says in Nahum 3. God says, Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. It shall come to pass that all who look upon you will flee and say, Nineveh is laid waste. So again, right before God says he's going to bring judgment on this nation, he says, I'm going to uncover your nakedness and expose your shame to the rest of the world. And he even uses the same language of removing the skirt and showing, uh, showing everyone their nakedness. So this is a, a consistent theme throughout the Bible, and it's a bit of an unusual one, but it makes sense. All humans relate to this idea of we want to cover up our nakedness. No one wants to be put in that vulnerable position. And here God is saying that uh, that nakedness not only represents uh, the sin, but also judgment. And so naturally, humans try and cover up their sin and they try and hide themselves from God, just like Adam and Eve did when God came down into the garden. Now, the problem is that the biblical authors don't just say that the people that they were writing to were naked and sinners. What they wrote then to their audience is true for us today. All of us are also sinners, and in the eyes of God, we could be classified as spiritually naked. We're spiritually sinners, spiritually under judgment, and therefore spiritually without clothing. And therefore, we're in the rightful path of God's judgment. God has every right to uh, enact the death penalty upon us. And we can often try to, to hide ourselves from God, just like Adam and Eve did. As soon as Adam and Eve realized their nakedness, they tried to cover it up with fig leaves. And fig leaves are these tiny, tiny, useless things. It would be useless to try and cover yourself up with fig leaves. But we do the same. Humans naturally will always try and cover up their sin 
with other things. The most common one is we try and cover it up with good works. We hope that if we do enough good things, maybe God will forget all the bad things that we did. Our, our, our good deeds can hopefully cover up for our bad deeds. But if you tried that argument in any court of law, that wouldn't work. If you're going into a court and you're there for a speeding fine, if you go to the judge and say, well, judge, yes, I did, I did go over the limit, but I help out at a soup kitchen and I help old ladies cross the road and I do all these other good things, what will the judge say? Nothing to do with driving. Nothing to do with your, punish- with your crime. The judge doesn't care about the good things that you've done. The reason you're in court is not because of all the good, but of the bad thing that has been done. And it, that's right. And if the judge is to be fair, and if he's to be a good judge, he has to make sure that the crime does not go unpunished. And so we would expect the same thing with God. God can't be bribed without good works. We can't go up to God and say, look, I, look at all the good things that I've done. Surely this means that I'm, I'm no longer under judgment. Does this mean I'm no longer spiritually naked? We try and clothe ourselves with our own good works, just like Adam and Eve tried to clothe themselves with their own works, with their fig leaves and clothing put together. But if we don't expect it to work in our human courts of law, why would we expect God's court of law to be any different? God is not going to be bribed by our good works that we've tried to put together. God has to be a good and just judge. So if human effort can't cover up sin and can't cover up nakedness, someone else has to help them. Let's return back to Genesis, Genesis 3. And we saw Adam and Eve's pretty pathetic attempt at trying to cover up themselves with the fig leaves. And God eventually finds them. Of course he finds them. That's, the, again, an example of human ignorance. We try and hide from God as if there's somewhere he wouldn't find us. So God finds Adam and Eve. And then, interestingly, after he's spoken with them and after Adam and Eve have been thrown out of the Garden of Eden, it says in verse 21, For Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. So God provides clothing for Adam and Eve. The fig leaves were insufficient. So God provided clothes for Adam and Eve. And it says that they're made of skin. Now, in order to have clothing of skin, something has to be skinned. You have to kill something to get a tunic of skin. And so we imagine it was a, a lamb, a goat, a ram, something like that. But an animal had to die so that Adam and Eve could be clothed with these skins that God provided for them. Very much so. Adam and Eve, they deserved judgment, and their penalty for their sin was death. But here we see that an innocent animal takes their place. And the the punishment was served. Notice justice is still served. The punishment or the crime does not go unpunished. But instead of Adam and Eve receiving the punishment, this innocent animal, this we assume a lamb, acted as a substitute. He was in the place of Adam and Eve. He treated God um, more or less um, 
God would have been the one to, to sacrifice the animal and provide it for them. And so now, Adam and Eve don't have to worry about the threat of judgment because they are clothed. They're no longer naked. They're clothed. But it wasn't because of anything they did. They tried to cover their own nakedness with clothing, but it didn't work. God had to provide clothing for them. And it was only through the death of an innocent animal that they were able to avoid that judgment. I've been told that the safest place to be in a fire is to be where the fire's already passed. If a fire's already decimated, you know, one part of the forest, you're pretty safe there because the fire has nothing to 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 burn. There's nothing there. It's already passed. And the same is true for God's judgment. The safest place to be on judgment day is going to be where God's judgment has already passed. And at that place, of course, is the cross, the cross of Jesus. Here in Genesis 3, this innocent animal, this innocent lamb that died in place of Adam and Eve points forward to the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus is also described as a lamb. And Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve and acts as our substitute. He stands in our place and takes the penalty of death for us. So it's something that we don't have to worry about. And because God's judgment was put on Jesus, we no longer have to fear it. And just like the lamb provided clothing for Adam and Eve with its skin, Jesus also provides clothing for those who believe in him. And the Bible refers to these as robes of righteousness. Now, these aren't literal clothes that we can put on. Once again, it's a a spiritual symbol. So in the same way that we are at one point spiritually naked and under God's judgment, to put on spiritually this robe of righteousness indicates that we are no longer under the penalty of sin. We have been set free from that Jesus has taken the place for us and notice this robe of righteousness it's actually a robe of good works essentially but it's not human good works it is the good works of Jesus which are perfect and pure when Jesus led a perfect and sinless life he was able to give his righteousness to us his perfect life that he lived is accredited to us And so when we put on this robe of righteousness, it's putting faith not in our good works, but in the good works of Jesus, in the good and perfect work that he provided during his life and ministry on earth. We could call it a holy um, gown or whatever. Uh, Yeah, uh, that that would work as well. Now, all of this sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? We're We're on a path that leads to death. Jesus takes that penalty of death for us, gives us a robe of righteousness, we're set free. That's pretty easy. But sinful human beings complicate very simple things. To accept the righteousness of Christ, his substitution on our behalf, it's a really easy task. It does not require much from us at all. 
We simply have to turn from our sin, acknowledge our need for Jesus, and trust in Him fully. It's really simple. But that's where the problem comes in. Humans don't want to acknowledge that they have a need for Jesus. And they certainly don't like to admit that they have sin in their life. Now, in order to receive clothing to cover our nakedness, we first have to admit that we are naked. But humans don't like to do that. We're proud and we're stubborn. We don't like to admit that we're in desperate need of help from someone else. We also don't like the idea that we're on this path towards God's judgment. Humans don't like that. We want to be our own, um, own source of morality. And even if it means we're heading towards certain death, some humans would rather stubbornly say that they're already fully clothed while standing completely stark naked before God, even though God has given them free access to clothing. I want to finish with one final story this morning. And it's a story of a Syrian general called Naaman. And Naaman, he was, he was well known in his country. He was regarded very much as a hero. But he had one big problem. And that was that he had the disease of leprosy. And leprosy would lead you to certain death. And so Naaman, he was looking for solutions to his problem. And he heard that in Israel, there was a man, a prophet called Elisha, who could perform miracles and healings. And so Naaman, he goes to the prophet Elisha. He travels all the way from his home country, all the way to Israel. And he comes to the house of Elisha. And instead of Elisha coming out, Elisha's servant comes out to greet Naaman. And then the servant tells Naaman, if you want to be healed... Go to the Jordan River and bathe yourself seven times. And then the servant goes back into the home and leaves Naaman there. Now this really makes Naaman mad. He is really offended. And he's offended for a number of reasons. The first is, Elisha doesn't come out himself to greet him. Naaman's this big, high-ranking official in the Syrian army. He's come all the way to travel to meet Elisha, and then Elisha doesn't even come to the front door to greet him. He sends someone else. So his pride is very much hurt by this, that Elisha hasn't come to greet him personally. Secondly, it offends Naaman because the Jordan River had a reputation for being muddy, murky, not at all pleasant. And when you read the text, uh, Naaman even says, why couldn't he say, Go bathe in one of the rivers in my own country. They're way nicer than the Jordan. Thirdly, Elisha had asked him to do something. Naaman didn't really want to do anything. In the text, it says that he expected Elisha to simply wave his hands and he would be healed. He traveled all the way here and he he wanted Elisha to click his fingers and be healed. But Elisha asks him to do something. And fourthly, the task that Elisha asked him to do was silly. Go into the Jordan River and dunk yourself in seven times. So Naaman is very much offended by all of this. His pride is hurt and he can't stand being humbled or humiliated. 
And so rather than acknowledge the fact that he is on a path to certain death, he decides that he would rather keep his leprosy and die rather than be humbled and be healed and saved. He wanted to hold on to his pride so desperately he was willing to die for it. But then one of Naaman's servants says something to him. In 2 Kings chapter 5, let's turn there. This is our final text for this morning. 2 Kings chapter 5. And as Naaman is in his chariot on his way home, deciding, that's it, I'm not having any of this, forget it, I'd rather die than admit to the fact that I need help. 2 Kings 5 verse 13. Here's what Naaman's servant says to him that changes his mind. As his servants came near and spoke to him, they said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something big or great, wouldn't you have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So the servant points out to Naaman, Elisha asked you to do something really, really easy. This is really simple to do. It's not a big task. If you could be healed and saved and avoid certain death by doing this tiny, small, really insignificant thing, why not? And he even says to Naaman, he says, if the prophet Elisha asked you to do something big and grand and majestic, you would have done it, wouldn't have you? Mm-hmm. Naaman's this, this Syrian general. You know, If Elisha had told him, go out and conquer 500 guys or something, Naaman would have said, right up my alley, I'll do it, whatever I can to get healed. But when he's asked to do something simple and something that's humbling and humiliating even, Naaman refuses. It's a simple task, but because it requires humility, Naaman is unwilling to do it. He wants to do something big that will, you know, appeal to his pride, his sinful human nature. But the servant, he he does a really good job. He says, Naaman, If the prophet asked you to do something great, you would have done it, wouldn't you? But now he's asking you to do something really simple. He says, wash and be clean. Why don't you just do it? And this, the servant manages to change Naaman's mind. Naaman decides his servant is right. And so in verse 14, it says, Naaman went down and he dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God, that's Elisha. And what happened? His flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So he comes out after dipping himself seven times in the Jordan River, after doing this humbling and humiliating act, he comes out and he is healed. And his skin is so perfect and unmarred, it's like that of a little child. It's that perfect and restored and clean. Naaman was rescued from certain death with his leprosy. But in order to escape that death, he had to first humble himself. He had to recognize his need for help. And he had to put aside his sinful pride. All of us are a bit like Naaman in that way. We all stand before God as sinners, as naked, as ashamed and deserving of judgment. But God has provided a way for us to avoid that judgment and to be clothed. 
and to receive that robe of righteousness that will rescue us from death is really, really easy. It's very, very simple. The only thing that complicates it is our human pride. That's the only thing that gets in the way. As we said, our human pride, it immediately wants to say, I can do enough good works to be saved. I don't need Jesus to to fill in for me. I can do it by my own merit. But we've already seen why that doesn't work. God's not concerned with the good that you've done so much as the sins that we've committed that rightfully need justice to be served. Another way that we try and wiggle our way out of this is we say, well, I'm not as bad as other people. I could be worse, you know. I've never murdered anyone. I've never committed adultery. You know, I do little sins. I don't do any big sins. I'm not as bad as this person. But unfortunately, the standard of what's right and wrong is not other people. If it were, we'd be pretty well off, I'd say. But the standard is God's law, which is perfect. And unless we've kept that law perfectly, well, we're not good enough. And frankly, we're just as bad as anyone else, really. So the argument that I'm not as bad as other people doesn't hold any weight either. And I'm sure there are a myriad of reasons and excuses that we as humans come up with to try and hold on to our pride. And say, no, I I don't need help. I can do it by myself. Even though we're heading straight towards certain death. So what do we need to do? We need to be willing to admit to the fact that we're naked. Admit to the fact that we are in need of help from someone outside of ourselves. That we need help that only God provides. I want to challenge us this morning to reflect on the sin that we have in our lives. And I want us to think about it not in general terms, but in very specific ways. Not just generally thinking, well, I guess I could be a bit nicer, or yeah, sometimes I tell the odd lie. That's perhaps a good place to start. But I challenge us to really think about specific instances in our life where we know we haven't upheld God's law or we've done something that we know has offended God. And as we reflect on that sin, it really should cause us to to be upset. It should bring us to, to sorrow. Because if we love God, and I'm sure everyone in this room does, if we love God, then it will hurt us And it will make us upset when we realize and we meditate on the fact that we've done things that have hurt God. And if we do that, what it causes in us is to release and let go of that pride. Pride goes away once we realize and we really come to terms with the fact that we are in desperate need of God's help. And doing that, reflecting on that sin, it humbles us. And it makes us realize our desperate need for God. And Paul says that there are two types of sorrow. He says there's a sorrow that leads to death and a sorrow that leads to eternal life. A sorrow that leads to death is where we reflect on our sin and we we get lost in it and we say, woe is me, I've done so many bad things, no one can help me, I'm beyond saving. That's a sorrow that will lead us, same as anything, on that path to certain death. 
But Paul encourages us to have a sorrow that leads to godly repentance, which he says brings eternal life. This is a sorrow that, yes, admits to the fact that we've done wrong. And it's a sorrow that grieves, and, uh, grieves us in our hearts that we haven't always done the right thing by God. But it's also a sorrow that then doesn't just stay there. It's a sorrow that says, God, please help me. It's a, it's a sorrow that leads to a turning away from sin. Not just saying, oh, I've done all these terrible things. It's a sorrow that says, I'm going to now turn away from my sin. And God, I need your help. If I'm going to stay on this path, God, I need your help to clothe me. I want for you to give me a robe of righteousness. That's the kind of, of sorrow that the biblical author Paul wants for us to have. One that leads us to a godly repentance and one that leads us ultimately to eternal life. Humility will always point to the cross. And as we said, the cross is the safest place in the world we can be because that's where God's judgment has already passed. The cross is where a robe of righteousness is available for every single person who recognizes their nakedness and their need for God. So my challenge to us this morning is reflect, think about specific examples in our lives, not in general terms, but specifically about ways we have fallen short of God's perfect standard. And from then, do not stay there. Staying there will lead, to, uh, will lead to death. But if we're humbled and we turn from our sin and we turn to the cross, that is what will result in us receiving eternal